three, two, one, go. Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. I'm David. And today we are going to talk about a whole new movie, which I picked last time um, after we talked about the very interesting Wages of Fear. Uh, we are now going to talk about uh, the shop around the corner, which we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, but first, David and I did want to talk about uh, a little project we want to do, which uh, is we would like to add a second episode per month to the podcast, but something different than what we do the with this particular segment, which is the kind of great movies that we want to talk about um, that maybe aren't getting as much attention as we think, or maybe just a great movie. Uh, what we would like to do is we would ha- like to add a new episode for gap fillers, uh, which may just be called the gap filler episode. I don't know, David. We haven't really come up with a, a name. But uh, but the premise being that uh, one of us uh, will pick a movie that we think the others should see that they have not seen. Uh, so, for example, David off podcast uh, jokingly mentioned uh, the film Kroll, which I think he should see. Uh, and I think it's a wonderful film, David. Uh, and which I may now pick for this movie, even though I suspect 99% of the general public does not think it's a good movie. Uh, but I may pick that film. Um, and I, I'm assuming, David, you would be delighted to watch what I think to be one of the greatest 1980s fantasy movies of all time. I absolutely would. And of course, and I know for a fact that you haven't seen Ilza Shewolf of the SS, so I could uh, drop kick you straight into hell if I wanted to. <laughs> Of course, you come up with something even more just crazy than I came up with. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, so in order for us to do this, uh, David and I talked about uh, doing a subscriber drive uh, because it, it really is about kind of giving us an in, uh, a push to really kind of add it in. Um, and so what we would like to do, and, and I think David and I would agree with this, is we would like to do a push to get up to 200 subscribers. Uh, we're well shy of that at the moment. Um, so if you're interested in that, if you're a listener and you're interested in, in us doing some more work, uh, please just share the show, ask people to subscribe to us and go iTunes or the RSS feed, whichever works. And yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. And if we get to that number, we'll add that second episode in immediately and we'll just start hammering out movies. We may or may not start with Kroll or your She-Wolf SS movie, David, but we will see where we will start. So make us yammer more. Yes, that's exactly the point. Make us yammer more. Uh, in any case, uh, let's dive into our discussion because we didn't really have a movie-specific kind of rant that we wanted to have today. Uh, but we were going to talk about The Shop Around the Corner, which is uh, a 1940 film, which eventually was remade or ripped off, depending, I guess, on your perspective, into the uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan flick, You've Got Mail. It was also, uh, I found out this morning, made into a musical with Judy Garland called In the Old, uh, the Good Old Summertime in 1949 and it was a broadway musical at one point and also uh it was like a like a play with the original actors margaret sullivan and uh james stewart uh so that was really interesting that it was kind of this combination of all these elements um it is a rather interesting film i selected it because i thought we were going to come back to america uh and then upon doing a little bit more digging realizing it's actually a very complicated international kind of thing because the director Ernst Lubitsch is a German American he was a naturalized citizen in 1936 uh the film itself is based on a Hungarian play uh by Miklos Laszlo and it is set in Budapest uh although presumably and I could not find production notes but I'm assuming it was actually filmed somewhere in the United States, most likely. Yeah, I think they were kind of busy in Budapest uh, around that time. It very much has a, a studio uh, look to it. Uh, in, in fact, it seems to exist in that kind of um, never-never-land Europe that uh, was typical of so many uh, Hollywood films of the, the studio era. When you look at, for instance, the universal horror films, uh, which uh, take place in some vaguely defined Eastern Europe, often with with a made-up name, uh, and uh, where you have this mishmash of American and uh, or, or Cockney accents. Uh, I mean, there even obviously it's an even more imaginary world. But I think here there's there is still a sense of, of an imagined Europe, which uh, gives it 
well, moves the film into a metaphorical uh, realm, uh, and I think, you know, which is to the benefit of its project. Yeah, and I wonder how much um, I, I regret that I did not do more uh, research into into Ernst Lubitsch's uh, work, because apparently he actually has has a a yeah. film touch named after him, the Lubitsch touch, right? Uh, he's he's known he's done a number of comedies. He's known for doing uh, variations of comedy. Uh, probably most of his major works are comedies, uh, including this one. Although this is, uh, I don't think considered his best work, um, at least not in terms of the sort of filmic history. Although it does have a 100% of Rotten Tomatoes, which was shocking to me because they almost never give that out. Um, but uh, but I really was curious about how this film actually addressed that, and I wish I had looked because. Uh, there is something here. There is a touch to the way in which it is filmed. Um, well, I mean, certainly it uh, it is uh, extremely well regarded. In uh, I think uh, uh, Pauline Kael uh, called it uh, considered quote as close to perfection as a movie made by mortals is ever likely to be. Uh, Thank you for bringing that quote oh, up and I'm taking very, it from I me. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I think the, um, my, at least my, my sense of the touch is of the, the deafness of the, um, of, of the comedy. In fact, the, I, at least the way I would, I would describe a lot of what goes on to the film, it's almost the effect of, of a stone skipping over, um, a lake. And every time it hits the, the water, you get a sense of, of the, the depths that are below. Uh, and so there's so many lines in here that are very, they're very quick, they're, they're very light. Um, and yet there's a, um, I guess I, I consider the film paradoxical in that, uh, it, its greatest weight is between the lines of the lightest bits. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. And I guess that would give me license to actually get into one of the things I really wanted to discuss, David, which yes. is the tone of the film. Um, and I, I, I'm guessing people, the second I mentioned you've got mail, everybody knows the basic premise of this movie, but two people corresponding, not realizing they're corresponding, who don't like each other in real life, but have fallen in love with each other via correspondence. Granted, email did not exist in 1940, um, although AOL might have via some kind of time traveling, uh, demonic, uh, practice, uh, given that AOL has been very very hard set on not dying, um, although it is dead now, isn't it? Oh, it's a, it a zombie. I'm not sure. Okay, <laughs> um, it's pretty close to being there. Uh, but I wanted to talk about the tone because um, now part of the thing I was talking with you, David, off podcast, or at least hinting at, was um, something I've noticed from from work that comes from this general period. Uh, in this case, 1940, being as you rightly pointed out to me, David post the uh, the Great Depression, but itself as a film is actually dealing with it in some not necessarily direct ways, although I think sometimes it tries to oh, get there. Some pretty direct moments, right? There are references to uh, just how... Uh how awful it would be to lose your job at this particular point in time is is, is stated quite openly on a few occasions in the film. True, uh, it, and that's sort of put up against um, our main characters, uh, you know, when he he talks about just leaving the job, about how easy it would be, which could just be posturing. It does which, feel like posturing, because we're told so many people are out of work. Yeah, and I it is an interesting, and that, and I uh, some of that could be historical context that isn't just the is not specific to the U.S., uh, which may be fair. Although it is interesting, set in 1940, uh, it it is curiously uh, not addressing what is actually happening in Europe at the period of time, which is not happy playtime <laughs> by most stretches of the imagination. Um, at least not directly, but in any case, so the tone thing I wanted to talk about, which is that um, uh, at least one other person has mentioned that this film uh, elicits uh, a similarity to uh, uh, Miss Lonely Hearts. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, David. Uh, but folks, maybe I believe it's Nathaniel West, uh, which is uh, also if it's a, a novella, maybe of um, a, about a guy who runs a. a an advice column set during during the Great Depression, full on set, and it's basically people writing in with their horrific, awful, 
terrible things like like people being molested by their fathers right they're they're like living in the streets right and he's giving them advice but as we learn about his character he's having all of these to- these difficulties struggling with what are essentially utterly mundane and absurdly simplistic things compared to the people he's giving advice to so there's a kind of darkly comic element to somebody who really doesn't have any real problems trying to address people with very real problems mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's what this film often is dealing with although it's not obviously following the same format at, throughout moments of this film we watch characters dealing with these extremely dark uh, terrible consequences in their lives uh, while being set in moments that I think are meant to be comical, which for me I found very difficult because um, that occasionally that darkly comic element is really difficult to separate. And it's something that I know my students had issues with when I taught Miss Lonely Hearts is I kept trying to explain to them it's darkly comical. Or when I teach Faulkner, I'll teach As I Lay Dying. And I'm like, there are moments in here that are meant to be comical. And they don't get it because they're so loaded with what is uh, are serious consequences, which we don't generally find funny um, or not written in a way that would give the impression that they're meant as funny. So I'm thinking in particular around the middle of this film when everything seems to be going horribly, horrendously wrong. Um, and so the the great example of this is uh, uh, we have our main character played by, or excuse me, our boss character, Mr. Matichek, uh, um, who we don't learn until shortly after, right, has, has been having a, a private investigator look up on his wife because he believes she's been cheating on him. Uh, and it turns out that that's actually true. She has been. And for him, it's utterly devastating to the point where he actually tries to commit suicide. Uh, We don't see it, we hear it, right? And then we see the after effect. Um, But in this same moment, right, our our main character loses his job, right? Thinking that he's somehow lost favor with his boss when actually his boss is transplanting his psychological uh, issues outwards, right? He's he's being rude to basically everybody uh, because he's so upset. We have that happening. We have... Well, except he thinks that Krolik is the one having enough of the affair with his right, wife. Right, which we do learn a, a, a bit later. So it is actually maybe a more pointed. You're right. Uh, so at that moment, too, right, he loses his... Krolik loses his job. He goes to have this date, not realizing until that moment that the date is actually the woman who uh, he hired or, or, well, he didn't directly hire, but did actually get... She did get hired, uh, who pretty much hates him um, and is immensely rude to him when he goes to talk to her. And he's like trying to strike up a conversation, right? He, I love this moment because he's sitting there and, and she's like, leave me alone, right? And, you know, I, I'm waiting on somebody here. And he's like, oh, you're reading Tolstoy. Have you read Dostoevsky? And like he's trying to strike these conversations to show that he's interested in the same thing she's interested in. But she just keeps insulting him. Uh, and I feel like those moments are meant to be funny. But at the same time, um, I... I had a difficult time uh, separating the two uh, because the tone was very, very uh, not so much cynical, but uh, I'm having trouble finding the word, but despairing, I guess, is the word I would go with. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there there is a lot of darkness uh, in in the film, and I, I think for for me, I, I had less um, difficulty seeing. At least, I didn't see these moments, uh, some of these moments, as being blackly comic. Rather, that it was a film that could shift from the comical to the dark on a dime. Uh, and so I don't, I didn't feel that there was ever anything in, um, in Matichek's despair, uh, and his suicide attempt that I was supposed to find funny. Uh, and in the encounter, um, when, um, uh, when, when, uh, Jimmy Stewart's Krolik meets, um, uh, Margaret Sullivan's Carla in the, uh, in the, re- in the restaurant where, or the, the, the cafe where she, uh, she is waiting for her pen pal to show up unknowing, unknowing that it's Stuart, though he has, has fi- found this out here. Um, that there, the, we are getting, it, it, there are sort of, uh, lots of comical moments in the, this, because we know that he knows more about what's going on in the conversation than, than she does. But when she lays into him, uh, and with that, that elaborate insult and finally saying that where there's an intellect, there's a, a, a cigarette lighter that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's so cruel, um, that a, again, and then it suddenly stops being funny and we see the hurt 
um, in, in, in his face. And so the, I think one of the, the, the delicate balancing acts that the film engages in is rather than say, uh, film like Arsenic and Old Lace, which has, uh, which finds murder hilarious, uh, and, and does so magnificently. Uh, here we can, uh, shift in a single line of dialogue from the comical to the dark, and they're still separate. Uh, it's, it's funny, funny, funny. Oh, now it's not funny. Mm. Uh, or even, or, um, I mean, even in the, uh, in, in the, the suicide attempt scene, um, we have the, uh, it, it, it's been a, um, we've, we've had a fairly dark succession of scenes because we right, right before that, Kralik has been fired yep. and, and that's, you know, a, a pretty heavy moment. And then, but then even it, it's been heavy, heavy, heavy. And then suddenly there's a, um, there's a bit of a break because, uh, uh, Kralik speaks to Carla as he's starting to leave. And we have her, uh, saying that, you know, starting to say to him and catching herself and being fired, I wouldn't wish that on. And she stops herself and he finishes on your worst enemy. Uh, so we, we start getting banter again. So it's dark, 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 then some funny. And then it goes dark again as we, um, as, as Krolik is given the, the evidence of, um, his wife's, uh, infidelity, uh, his heartbreaking statement that he, he, you know, want, just wanted to, them to live their lives, grow old together, but apparently she feels otherwise. And then he leaves the room. And then we have the errand boy come in. And then it's, it's, it's pure slapstick, uh, with, uh, him, uh, get, you know, getting the phone call from Matajek's wife, putting on a voice to pretend to be, uh, one of the, uh, the, the female clerks. Uh, and so it's just this pure comedy, though we're aware that just out off screen, there's something happening. What, what is happening with Matajek? We don't know. And then he goes to look for Matajek and all, and then, and then we have the, uh, the, the drama of the suicide attempt. Uh, and so it's, again, it's this switch, 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 switch. And the film is able to do that. And I, that, that may be another, um, uh, example of, of Lubitsch's touch that it, it, the film still feels like, um, a credible whole, that it's not two movies working against one another, that the, uh, for all of the, the lightness and the comedy in here, there is darkness just outside. And, much as uh, there's so much of this film is between the lines, right? Uh, so in, in that scene, uh, where we're watching the comedy with the errand boy, but we know off screen something terrible is happening. Uh, the, there's outside of the film, there is this darkness, right? The, um, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's not, um, made during the depression proper anymore, but, uh, as you said, the, uh, the, the, the memory of, of the depression, the anxieties and the traumas would have been very present in the minds of, of the audience. So the references to it would certainly be apt. But we have the, the, the terrible shadow of World War II uh, that's uh, you know, it's already been wait, ra- raging in Europe for a year. Um, uh, and there's, a, there's this fragility, right? We have this little microcosm of the shop and all the little things going on in there. But uh, the, the world you have there could so easily fall into chaos. Uh, and so the, at least partly for me, the, the anxieties, the economic anxieties that the characters have, uh, which read as direct references to the Great Depression, also seem to me to be coded references to the terrible chaos lurking outside the edges and coming closer and closer. Hmm. Well, that was, that. wow, David. <laughs> That was one hell of a thing. Um, Sorry, I kind of went off on a on a on a spurt there. You did no, it was it was one hell of a spurt. And as you were talking, I was thinking too back to the um, the scene when uh, uh, Matichek is having an argument with uh, with Stewart's character, where I, I think prior to that he he's brought up, you know, you you've been treating me differently. What the hell's going on? And and as you've noted, right, we find out a little bit later that he suspected him. We find out when he's in the hospital. Matichek suspected um, Kralik to be the one who was cheating. Uh, it turns out not, and we'll get to that uh, the character who was in a mm. bit, uh, because I have thoughts about that fella. Um, but uh, I, I, that scene when they're having the argument in the store, and um, it's about whether or not they can leave early, because we, find, we know that two of the characters have a date they don't know they're going yes. on. Um, 
and he's yelling at the like, how dare you all these years? You've, you know, I've asked you one night, one night in so many years to stay over and blah, 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 blah. And then somebody comes in right, and he stops and he goes, oh, how can I help <laughs> yeah. you, madam? Blah, 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 blah. And then without even like losing the beat, right, he starts up again and he starts yelling and then the phone rings and he goes, oh, blah, 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 you know, and he just it. we see that code switching yeah. all the yeah. time. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting for the characters, the way in which they can they do code switch and the way in which they use it. In fact, uh, numerous times throughout. So, for example, Margaret Sullivan's character at one point when she wants to convince Kralik to give her the day off for the night off, right? What does she start doing? She starts to manipulate him, and he catches it eventually. But what she starts by saying is like, "I appreciate all the great things you have done for me, and I and you know you know we may not like each other personally, but you know at least I learn a great deal from you, and I think everyone would benefit from being underneath your tutelage." And yada 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 yada, and she's just like going on and like basically buttering him up. And even there, a moment of darkness when she says, "When you, when you you're such a gentleman, because when you say let's go to, uh, into the stock room to uh, to stack the shelves, you mean to go into the stock room to." Stack the shelves uh, right. and we know and there's been just a couple of veiled references to where she worked before that clearly something you know, that, that some some pretty horrific harassment occurred yeah 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 and it, yeah I mean so we get all of that 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 code switching between the characters um, I'm now going to talk about the slimy bastard character that uh, that we we haven't mentioned yet but should have. Uh, which is uh, uh, Vat- Vatis, right, played by Joseph Schildkraut, yeah. um, who's, uh, I believe, Austrian. Uh, the, the cast is a little little interesting in terms of there's some uh, German-Americans and Austrians in the, in the cast. Uh, but uh, his character, right from the very beginning when we meet him, I think we're supposed to assume everything coming out of his mouth is like, like snake language. Yeah. It's, ju- it's just he is fake in every sense of the word. Um, and it's in a way that uh, I think is is really cl- really interesting uh, in terms of its contrast to uh, uh, Pepe uh, Pepe, who um, does put on those very fake touches. Yes, but we know that that's what's happening because we know the context in which he's doing so. Whereas Vadis, we don't understand that context until much later in the film, about almost two thirds in. Pepe's always performing for an audience and 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 and, and finishes right. his performance and waits for applause, whereas Vadis never stops. Yes, yes, yes. He's always on that performance, and and I think that's that's something that we see in so many ways is the way in which so many of the characters put on performances, with the exception, I think, for the almost most almost entire film, which is Kralik, who seems to be the perpetually honest one. Uh, which people don't like, and we see that. For example, remember the the very first scene when we see them all together, right, or almost all of them together. They're having a debate, right, and and Kralik will say something, and then they will misinterpret what he said yeah. to be like, you know, you didn't like this thing. And you say, no, no, what did I just say? I said, I said, um, like it was like the goose liver or goose something, yeah. goose whatever, he ate goose, right? And he said, I had too much goose last night, and they interpreted it to mean he didn't like the goose. Oh my gosh, look at how how ungrateful he is. He didn't like what they cooked for him, and he said. What did I just say? I said I had too much goose. I did not say I didn't like it. Yeah. And that happens so many times in that scene where people say something and other people misinterpret it. Or Fata seems to uh, inter- misinterpret it deliberately. Yes. Because uh, yeah. I think for him, it's there's there's this um, this sense for him that he is trying to slime his way up the ladder, yeah. the social and economic ladder. Uh, and the way to do it is on the one hand by buttering you up and on the other hand cutting you down by making you seem socially less acceptable as in the case right you went to this dinner um, and I, it, I believe you went with his boss is what the dinner was um, and by undercutting him right as though to suggest I'm now getting ammo I can use later and I don't know how aware Kralik is in that moment that that's what's happening that the goose thing is a particular piece of ammo but it would seem, if he's been working with this guy for a while, that maybe he would be aware that, no, this is he's now going to bring this up in conversation with Mr. Matichek later on, and it's going to make my life very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure how much he knows. I, it's certainly true once he re- finds out that he's a cheating bastard. Uh, 
he doesn't like he get he gets livid with him in that office when he becomes the manager and Vadis is trying to manipulate him again by saying, Oh, it's so great, you know, you you deserve the promotion. You're such a wonderful person. Blah 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 and right. All of these things, trying to give that that sweet but he, he knows he can feel that snake tongue just trying to worm its way into his ears. Well, and by that point, of course, uh, he's uh, he's brought him in to fire him. Uh, and I, I would say, I mean, I, I think that, that that's a marvelous scene, um, which also just shows how incredible, like, like Fadas is the unstoppable sycophant, right? Yes. And and you notice that in fa- in, in a weird way, he's winning. That, that confrontation, and not, not in the sense that he's winning Krolik over. Krolik knows the truth about him, has called him in to fire him. But Krolik keeps shifting ground, trying to break that wall of sycophancy, the, you know, the, the ultimate yes man. And he's unable to do it because no matter how, what he says, Varas uh, comes back. And you can see sometimes a moment of panic in Varas's face as he goes, uh, you know, when he, um, uh, when he's told, "I don't want you to be a yes man," and and is put into positions uh, where uh, he, you know, in, he then says, "No, I disagree with you," but in a way that's still buttering up uh, Krolik. Uh And when Krolik finally comes out and says, "I don't like you," and Vadas comes back with, "And that's my problem to Turn around and make you like me." Uh, so that in, in the end, the only way. That, um, uh, that 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 can be expelled is through physical force, uh, but but I would though I would say that that um, after all, uh, Krolik is also theatrical, is dishonest uh, himself because after all, his letters, he's lying about who he is. By making himself seem more important than he is, and he's ripping off passages from Victor Hugo. Uh, um, and presenting them as his own thoughts in, in the letters. So he's just as much engaged in this falseness as uh, the other characters are. True, but it, I think his his attempts at falseness, um, he, he he does them... I, it's interesting where he does that 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 stuff, and and of course he does eventually mobilize that, right? Because he, he basically tries to convince uh, Miss Novick uh, that that the guy that she's been falling in love with is actually not so great, right? Not hot stuff, right? He he makes up that lie that he met the guy and he had like a you know he had a pouch belly and uh, Matthias you know, Popkin is his name and yes and just like these these yeah just all of this stuff he's trying to undercut the character but I think what he's doing it becomes clear why he's doing it is he's he's I think trying to de- to take away and something we'll talk about right that that the mythic quality of the romance that they've created in the letters i think is what's happening there but before we get into that um because i can i hear you breathing (laughs) you want to just jump down me on that Uh, uh, but uh but i think it's interesting that where in public krolik is generally speaking honest and to a fault perhaps because when he's honest he's unintentionally hurting people so like for example when he mentions to miss novick about the blouse she wore one day the polka dot blouse right he misidentifies the color right it's uh, it's like green with yellow dots not yellow with green dots whatever um but but he's honest he's he's strictly honest in that moment and realizing that by being honest people get really offended but he always does this he's always sort of like he doesn't he doesn't try to lie when he's at work. No. He tries to be as direct as possible, right? I mean, even with his boss, right? And, and perhaps reasonably so because he's worked there for so long. He should have a rapport, right? He's gone to the guy's house a number of times. But he comes up to him and he just point blank says, over the last few days, your attitude to me has changed. What have I done wrong? Have I not done my work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Not realizing, of course, what we find out later, which is that he uh, unfairly assumed that Kralik was the one uh, having the affair with his wife, which I suspect would make most people pissed off. Um, so I think there, there. It's interesting that in real life he tries to be the honest person, but yet the the film constantly is framing his interest in romance as as being uh, as the place where in which he's trying to upsell himself because he's trying to find something that I think ultimately both characters realize in that final kiss scene that doesn't exist. Yeah. Because they're in letters, they're they're is the, sort of you know in bringing up like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and and Victor Hugo and these people that he presumably is quoting, right? He's quoting people who uh, are they're not they're not real, right? They're they're 
their literary interpretations of a thing that is real, which by itself is then therefore uh, a false. It's right. It's 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 the 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 books don't give us the sense of what a romance actually entails, right? And and we can probably talk about whether or not this film is actually succeeding in its romance maybe a little bit later but uh but i think that's what the that is doing and that's probably a good time for us to bring up then what the letters uh entail and the characters sort of very flawed perspective of what uh relationships what people what what romantic interest is uh because i think those letters are a demonstration that they're dealing with fantasies Yes, well, certainly, and that's uh, is made explicit in Carla's speech yeah. about uh, she she started um, uh, being mean to um, uh, Krolik because uh, the book she read led her to believe that this was how to win him over. Uh, so yeah. she she tried to enact a fantasy um, and and it failed. Uh, though we we are though for all of his his honesty i guess before we leave that uh entirely aside though it relates sure. to the romance that we do have also the the fact that for the entire third act he is being fundamentally dishonest in that he knows now um who uh his pen pal is he knows that it's carla and he strings her along he um he continues to create that persona uh, after a, uh, a bit of a gap, and we have again one of those those great touches of Lubitsch, where we just see her hand reaching into an empty mailbox. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, um, and again, he just you know, there's just a a small thing that tells us so much uh, behind it, but um, he knows what's going on, and so he is lying to her uh, for uh, the, the rest of the film until. The, the 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 very last uh, the, the very last seconds of, of of the movie. But do you get the the sense that um, he is lying? But I I I don't know what what options he has because I think it's clear that uh, he does in fact love her, uh, despite the fact she's been mean to him. But I feel like that that scene in the 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 diner. Uh, or restaurant where she just rails into him. I, he comes to that conclusion that uh, she hates him, mm-hmm. like with a burning passion, right? And what do you say to someone? Like, what what could he say in that moment? He couldn't say, "Oh, well, I know you hate me, but I was the one who was supposed to meet you here. I love you." Because in that moment, maybe from his perspective, right, it's it's one that there's there's no coming out of, and so by continuing the facade and then of course undercutting it uh, he he sees it as a way of kind of bringing it back bringing it so that maybe we can get back to the moment and of course that's the moment we learn too much later right in that uh, in near the very end when she says like when i first met you i had a thing for you right uh and then it just all fell horribly apart. That, yeah. that, that is actually a very good point because, uh, I mean, the, the, there is a, an incredible balancing act that the film has to pull off there where uh, since he is now going to be dishonest to her, um, how, does, how does the film manage things so that um, there, he, that he does not start reading as too villainous uh, in, uh, in the film. Uh, yeah. And uh, you certainly uh, get the impression in, in the cafe that, he's, that there are all kinds of moments where he's about to tell her. Uh, he wants to, yeah. I think, and, yeah. Uh, and then uh, that that uh, rant of hers um, uh, changes things. Um, and to come back to her, the the way that uh, her um, uh, act, the way she acts on her uh, initial attraction to him in a way that uh, winds up being counterproductive. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so we have her engage in a kind of lie there too, right? That uh, the feelings that she is expressing are not the feelings that she actually has. Uh, and so we. I mean, there's there's deception all over the place in in, in the film. So whether it's uh, those characters not behaving in the way that they actually feel towards each other, Pepe putting on voices, Matuszek's wife uh, uh, and Varas uh, uh, betraying him, uh, the I guess I, uh, I I I find that then connecting back to uh, the. The anxieties of, and the fears of the the outer world of the this this little 
you know, at what point will our delicate lies all collapse uh, on one another? And then in this case, it 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 turned it works out all right uh, for for our characters. And the that that final reveal when um, uh, she uh, when when uh, Krolik pulls up his pant legs to reveal that he is not in fact bow legged, um, as as uh, Clara had had heard. Or uh, is, is this is maybe this this moment of empirical truth, right? Here, uh, she is a, she's finally is able to see something verifiable. He is not bow-legged. This is, so uh, now finally the two characters have arrived at uh, the honesty that they need. In in, in a joking manner, because I think. You know, she knows he's not bowling. Yes, yes. But but in that moment right there, there's this uh, – he, he he's revealed his this truth to her right there. You know, I'm the one, right, and I've been lying to you in the letters, right? Uh, and, and I don't know if he's quite so honest as to suggest I'm lying to you because that's not real life, right? We're real people. Um, but in that moment, right, he's, he's bringing up that hurtful, painful moment about being called bow-legged uh, – and and she says, well, well I, you know, I would still like to see them. And I think it's meant as a kind of a playful joke, like an in-joke that they will have in their relationship for all time, right? Like that kind of thing you think like, you know, w- when people become old married couples, they have rituals, which makes no sense to anybody else because they're, they're sort of longstanding jokes um, that are like somewhat self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are when shared between two people who care about each other is actually rather endearing. And I think that's what that is. It's this endearing moment, right? Let me show you my non-bowed legs, yes. my love, <laughs> right? Um, I, yeah, and I, I I do really like that touch at the end because uh, I I think it I think it undercuts the fantasy and it, it, it by making or not so much undercuts the fantasy but makes it clear that she understands that that's what's happened mm-hmm. that we're now dealing with real the real messy people stuff now which is something like you know you've brought up two great points which is that the fact that this film is about so much deception. Right, everybody in their own, with with some exceptions of some minor characters in the sidelines, right, are are deceiving for different purposes. Sometimes for what we would agree with are good purposes, sometimes not. Um, we also have, of course, relationships uh, and and romance uh, by implication uh, in its myriad forms, right, in its good and its bad forms. Uh, I mean, like you know, Matichek having what he thought was a loving relationship that just completely utterly burns the toast. But then we have. Um, uh, uh, Parovich, Parovich, gosh darn it, I forgot his, uh, Pirovich, uh, who we never see the relationship, but we hear about his his relationship, and we have no indication that otherwise that they are perfectly content and happy with their children. Um, Even that moment, right, towards the end when uh, really somewhat sadly, right, Matichek is uh, trying to find somewhere to go because he has nowhere to go. He's going to be alone. He doesn't want to be alone on Christmas night. And He's trying to talk to everybody like, "What is your plans?" And you know what we know what he's doing. Right? Yeah. He's trying to like hint, hint, invite me, right? And Pirovich says, uh, "You know, I I, I just want to go home and be with my children, and that's just that's everything we need. We're not having company, you know." Madchek's asking him questions like, "You know, is it going to be a party?" And he's like, "Yes. Is there going to be people there? No. It's just going to be us because that's all we need on Christmas night." And it's so sad because <laughs> poor Madchek just doesn't want to be alone yeah. but he can't go with Kralik and because we know what he's going to be up to um he can't go with the bus boy because he's going or excuse me the, the now clerk um uh the not bike boy sorry not bus boy because he's going home with his family um and then we get this this recently hired uh kid and i love this touch because it's so cute and adorable and really is actually rather comical we have this new bike boy yeah, rudy i think been, his name is rudy right and and he asks them you know what are your plans he's like yeah, he has nobody right he's alone and he just starts describing to rudy like all the food we could have like have you ever had this have you ever had that have you ever had this and that and that and that and rudy's like no and he's like would you like to and he's like yes and he's like come on my boy and he puts his arm around him and they go marching off into the night and it's just really cute and adorable in that moment um but again we see a, a a new relationship right he sees uh i think in that moment we get that sense that he's found a new person to kind of uh Raise up, as it as it and were. it is also. I mean, and and what, oh, there's a honesty there, right? Rudy is responding to him completely honestly. Yes, 
Right. Yes. Um, I mean, I think Rudy is the um, uh, well, really the, the only characters that we don't see engage in any kind of dishonesty, uh, because uh, I mean, even um, even Pirovich does because he 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 deceives Clara to help uh, Kralik's scheme. And and just a note, because it is one of the very first moments, the first like five minutes of the film. Every time Mr. Uh, Maracek says, I want your honest opinion, we see him walk into the room and then immediately walk out until the very end of that first scene when we just see his legs come down just as Maracek is saying, I want your honest opinion, and we see him just turn. We never even see his full body in the spiral staircase. I love that moment when we just see, like, this is a ritual where he doesn't want to give his honest opinion. Yeah. So he's just trying to avoid the whole idea. In fact, in the end, we see the entire shop is based, you know, it, it's, it's, these people's livelihood is based on dishonesty with the, the whole cigarette boxes, right? Uh, the, 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 the false sale in the window, the, the, the false purpose that uh, when, you, when she starts talking about it as a candy box to the, uh, the, other, the other client. Um, yeah. But so the only characters that we don't see engaged in dishonesty are the characters that we don't see do anything at all, really. Right, like the kind the of other, side characters. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the couple of other clerks that we don't really learn anything about other than their names. Uh, they, yeah, they, I mean, they don't actually do anything in the film. They have no story. So they therefore, uh, we, we, we can't say that they're dishonest, but that's only because we, have, we don't really see them do anything. Uh, whereas all the, all the characters who have arcs engage in dishonesty um, uh, you know, for, for better or worse reasons, but they do uh, all yeah. the way through. Yeah, you're a- you're absolutely right. Um, I, d- I don't really have anything to add because I th- I think you're just you're just flat out correct. Uh, but it is interesting. Uh, I think that this is this is billed as a romantic comedy, uh, and yet uh, in so many ways is uh, does not follow what we typically associate with the romantic comedy because it is it is as we've already discussed, right? It, it, it's about so many underlying somewhat uh, less romantic or comedic qualities, these kinds of underlying dampenings of the human spirit, yeah. uh, the deceptions and things like that. Yeah, And the, the romance itself is not as central uh, uh, to, to the story as we would perhaps expect. I mean, the, if we think of the scenes that, uh, that, that Sullivan and Stewart have together, uh, they're primarily hostile. Uh, with uh, it's only in the latter part of the film that they're uh, well. Once um, Stuart knows who she is, that uh, their conversations are about romance, even if they um, only one party in the conversation uh, is reading real meaning into the what the, these conversations mean to the two of them, sure. uh, and and so they're uh, and even then um, if we the. The I, I guess uh, to me the title is really quite truthful in that uh, the shop is the the center of the story uh, because I mean Matoshek's story is pretty important uh, I mean that's the, that in many ways feels like the emotional climax uh, the certainly the, the the climax of the dark portion of the film is the uh, everything leading up to the firing of Kralik and the suicide attempt of, of Matashek. Uh and then things start turning around and um, and, and becoming lighter uh, uh, yeah. uh, after that but we we, see, we we're in this little society and seeing the way the lives are interacting with one another and the what the relationship um i don't think i can call it a romance until very late in the film uh between uh uh, stewart and sullivan is one of the stories in 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 the shop and it may be the most important one uh or uh, as far as the film is concerned but it is not the story if i can if that makes sense yeah, I would I, I would agree that the I, I don't think the um <clears throat> I think when we get to maybe the last third of the film, the the romantic story takes center stage. Yeah. Because it because it, it as you said, right, we, we, we realize that Kralik is is he's trying to worm his way not worm, that makes it sound really evil, uh, but trying to get himself in her good graces. And he does, but it's more as a friend um, and but he's still kind of working his way in there, uh, and so then it becomes very central. Before it's always this kind of like 
we're here to go to work and kind of deal with the sort of daily people stuff, right? Dealing with uh, Matichek, uh and dealing with his personal stuff. But if the romance comes up, it's always this kind of like this is just part of everyday life, right? Like he's trying, Karlik is trying to find a, a woman, and he's he's honest in public about what he's looking for. Like he doesn't. He, someone says like, oh, oh, you want a really beautiful woman? He's like, no, no, I just want just a nice mm. woman. I just want a nice, like, let's not go crazy here. Like, I just want to find, he's essentially looking for the one. Um, and But those are always these kind of side elements. They're kind of things that come up in conversation because they're, like, the expectations of things people would talk about if they're socializing right before work, right? They would talk about their relationships, right? Uh, Pirovich talks about his wife. Uh, you know, uh, we, we talk about their their daily interests, things like that. Um, so that's, I think, the way it frames it at the start. But by the time you get toward the end, it becomes the central focus. And I think that's because of the way in which Matichek essentially leaves the film, which is he leaves almost uh, uh, metaphorically by by dying uh, in the sense that he does attempt a, a suicide. And the result of that is that he's removed from the film until he has a kind of rebirth at the end when he comes back. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I th- I think that's that's a product of the film switching its focus to Kralik and leaving behind some of that other stuff and making it secondary to his story. But that doesn't occur until almost two-thirds into the film. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Yeah, and the other thing I did want to bring up too is it mostly just because I found it really amusing. Uh, I really love Pepe. Yeah. Uh, he has great moments. Uh, Evie Manieri was noting to us that her favorite moment is... Um, uh, when he says, oh, God, what is the line? Damn it. Oh, uh, draw your own conclusions? Draw your own conclusions, yes, because uh, uh, he comes in and uh, Miss Matichek, uh ca- calls and he answers the phone and he basically just tells her off, right? And says, why don't you hang out with Vadis? Ha, ha, ha. And then he cl- puts down the phone and walks away while everyone's looking at him like, what the hell just happened? And he's like, draw your own conclusions and walks away. Uh, I love his character because at the beginning he he isn't much of a character. He's kind of this secondary figure. He kind of just the bike boy. He's not much of anything until in the moment he he stops Mr. Matichek from committing suicide, and we see that that first scene we see after that of him uh, at the hospital. He walks out with the doctor, and he's yeah. just talking to him like, oh, it's uh, yeah, he's having a psychological problem. It's uh, obviously it's a breakdown, and it's just a very big deal. And it's, uh, rah, 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 like he's got all the authority in the world. And the doctor eventually asks him, like, who are you? <laughs> and yeah. he's like, it's none of your concern, whatever. Like, you know, it's just I love that he plays it off so beautifully. It's like instant adulthood too, right? Because from that moment on, he's in a suit. Yes, that's right, right. He, and he does, in fact, he becomes a clerk, right? He gets this big job. And what does he do immediately after that? He calls. I love that moment, too. And he calls on the phone. And he just, like, X number numbers, right? And then they connect him. And he's like, I need to find a new bike boy. Bring five of your best over here, and I'll assess them. And it's like, but you're not the boss. <laughs> like, who are you? And he's just, like, he just hangs up the phone, whatever. No big deal. And he just hires a kid. And he, like... There are moments when he we see him briefly you know, talking to this new new bike boy Rudy, and he's like, "You're late. What is wrong with you? Like, you got to leave right this second. Do you care about this job?" And it's just like he's taken that authoritative position of boss man, even though he's only a clerk. So I love I love his character. Um, he is probably the most slapstick of the characters. Um, I think I think that's fair to say he's closest to being slapstick, although I, I maybe not quite. Full-on slap. Yeah, but he's the one doing the silly voices, and uh, yeah, yeah uh, I mean, uh, I guess Perovich has the slapstick moments, like with the, the the sort of the leaving the room every time honesty is called for, as like you mentioned. I do, uh, uh, and uh, and I guess the other bit of full-on slapstick is uh, with the, the the fight with Fadas, which has all of those Ochichornia uh, cigarette boxes opening simultaneously. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and I love that because they immediately all go to pick it up and shut them. Yes. And yeah. and because we've been led throughout the whole movie to believe that this the, oh, there's only one person of the whole lot that likes it, and it's Miss Novik. Yes. Uh, and but everybody else hates the box. Well, Matichek loves it, but his taste is questionable. Uh, and so I love that. Like he throws him on the ground, and then everybody literally stops the fight. It takes a side step 
just so we can close all these boxes and put them, put them away because yeah. the sound has got to stop. And then, of course, what does Vadis do? He's like, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get you. And you'll hear from my lawyer. Yeah. What's interesting, too, in the uh, relation to the cigarette boxes is that – well, the cigarette music boxes and how central uh, – how that, that – that, that's that music is and how much it's talked about and so forth uh, and this is in a film that um for all practical purposes has no score uh it uh you know other than the the during the opening credits um and we have a, well we have a diegetic uh, uh music uh in the um uh, in in the, uh, the, the 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 cafe but otherwise i think the only time that we get even it's a, a music on the soundtrack, and it's very faint. Is um, when uh, Matashek has uh, is, is alone in the store, um, and it's uh, and as, after he's found out about his wife, it's and it's very very brief. I, I wasn't it was so subtle. I wasn't even sure I was hearing music at that moment, and that's, that's and it's you know um, that's by 1940 that's kind of unusual. Uh, but the uh, in, in Wages of Fear was another uh, case with no score um, and itself unusual. Uh, but uh, and the, the film is obviously very, very different in, in their intents and, and in tones. But uh, I think the uh, the testament to the the filmmaking skill that we don't feel the absence of the music, right? And if you think about it, how many romantic comedies have you seen that have no music? None uh, that, that I can think of. This might be the first know, that, that sort of the, the, that, that tell us that cue is how we're supposed to feel. And here it's entirely down to the you know the the the, the pacing of the performances and the dialogue and uh, uh, and and again so much is the, the the film is is speaking so much through silences and absences. All the things that is uh, that the characters are not saying to one another or are simply implied. In the lines, or that we know is happening off-screen, yeah. right? Which, I mean, after all, the the central, well, the central romance between the two pen pals falling in love with each other is off-screen, right? They, we see, the, uh, the, you know, they're holding the evidence of their romance, uh, but uh, we never see them writing the letters. And in, in fact, just the that way of interacting, uh, it requires that uh, the other person is not there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the you know the, the how many little lines like just the um, uh, Perovich tells Kralik twice that those are great that those were lovely letters, right? Uh, saying it one time uh, th- that one remark basically means so don't quit your job because it's really important that you have one if you're going to have a serious relationship <laughs> with this woman, and the second time uh, is well yeah you don't like Miss Novak but uh, she wrote those letters and they mean a lot to you so maybe you do love her after all yeah I love Pierrich he's an adorable character he, he is he is he's a really adorable character um, well the only other thing that I, that I would just add and we, I don't know if we really have time to really explore it. Because um, we're we're a little over fifty minutes now, uh, is that I think it's also significant that where the film occurs is a a business environment uh, that that is its focal point uh, as opposed to say like people hanging out like I don't know at the library or whatever or in a in a park and just meeting it's the intersections of all of these people's lives as they occur within a business environment, within a space of capital, essentially. Um, and I, we, I really thought we would explore more of it, but but this film does deal with class issues uh, a number of times, and I thought it was a, a very interesting fact because Ernst Lubitsch did say in an interview at one point, which I found um, – that this in remark about this film because this film actually deals with characters and the ways in which they make their livings um and he said in one particular interview he said no one used to care how characters made their living if the picture was amusing uh, as long as the picture was amusing essentially what he's saying now they do care they want their stories tied up to life people nowadays have to make their living yeah and yeah. it's certainly i mean so here this this shop is both the is the means by which these people live yeah. And uh, but to the though we can see to the point with Mr. Matichek that it is it is not just his means of living it is his life, 
right? Where the Literally end now, says, yeah. yeah, he says, I've come home. And uh, he says, yes, this is my home. This is where, you know, this is where he belongs. He doesn't have a home outside of the shop, which on the one hand, it's the, the happy reunion and, the, and the, our, our little family is all together again. But... Uh, <laughs> and yet, and yet, as you're saying, right, it's not because as I, as I mentioned that earlier scene, right, when he, he, he views them as the family unit and maybe somewhat nostalgically or naively, but as soon as they all are leaving to go have their Christmases, yeah. where do they all go? They go to their own lives. The only person he has that connection with is Rudy, who has nothing, yeah. right? And so presumably, maybe they'll just, they'll like, we'll be together and we'll be like father and son, right? I don't know if he has kids. It wasn't a suggested that he did. It's, I think it implied that he does not because he has surrogate sons in, in, uh, in Krolik and now perhaps Rudy. Right. And now Rudy. I think Rudy is, is literally figuring out it to be his, his uh, son. But I think it's significant, right, that, that he treats this. This is my home. This is my family. You're part of that family. And yet – they're not. Yeah. So right? it's the, very distinct separation that outside of the work environment, that all ends. So yes, this this the, so here in 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 in, in capitalism, uh, this is the means of their lives, but it uh, also shapes their lives to the point that it can become their lives, and yes. we see the uh, the costs of that in Matashek. Yeah. Yeah, and and it is his characters. I think uh, I think he's probably the most tragic character in the film. I mean, I I feel like just saying, oh, this is just a romantic comedy. I feel like it's a romantic tragic comedy. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly a near tragedy uh, with uh, with him, and the uh, I think all of the the, the really. I mean, I think it's 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 interesting that the um, where the audience is led to feel the most emotional pain is him. When yeah. it, um, whereas, I mean, if we think about what Carla must have gone through when uh, the the long expected date uh, never materializes, she's left standing. She's humiliated. We know that she's uh, her heart has been broken. We have that moment with the uh, uh, the, the the hand in the empty mailbox. Uh, so she's been put through a lot, uh, but I mean, the, the, for the most part, the film doesn't share her point of view. Right? Yeah, we, we get we, the the moment when he shows up when she's been sick for a day or two, and yeah. uh, has sent a letter. We learn uh, because he knows what's going on and yeah. knows how distraught she must really be. Uh, but, but, and I think that's the moment when he realizes that she does actually love him. But Krolik, yeah, and the thing is, Krolik is our point of view character. Yeah, and then and then secondarily, uh, Matushek. But um, Carla has virtually no scenes to herself where we are, are seeing her perspective. We we get that. We get, there's a brief moment when we. Um, when she starts, uh, when we see her realize that uh, when she sees Peppy get the evening off, and so she's going to start to get to work on Krolik to get him to uh, give her the evening off. We have that moment there. We have uh, the a uh, little bit in the in the cafe where she's waiting, mm-hmm. um, and that's and 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 the and and the mailbox, but that's about it. Every yeah. other time that we see her on screen, it's uh, it's the 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 scene is from Krolik's POV. Yeah. Well, um, the, we don't have time because I really wanted to to hammer on the the this being I mean, partially a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have time to cover it uh, because we've got two minutes in order for us to be under an hour. Okay, so, well, we should wrap up then. I, so I apologize for that, but I think that's something maybe people should just think about. If you've seen this film and you like it, think about uh, whether or not you agree that it is at least partially a tragedy. I mean, obviously the whole film is not because it's dealing with too many other things, but I think for I think personally that I, I would treat Matichek as a proper tragedy, but David May, you seem to have, you don't think it's quite full. Well, I think if he'd committed suicide, it would have been a full-on tragedy. Uh, Fair enough. That that would have been maybe. We our last scene, yeah. our last shot of of him is him happy. So um, you know, and you know, yeah, but it, tragically well, happy. Well, there's a, there, there's that qual. <laughs> yeah, I would say the 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 comedy is constantly being qualified by the darkness that's that's always looking to come in. 
That's a good that's a good line. Okay, we gotta stop because David, you need to tell us what our film is for next year. Or next yeah, no next year. Yeah, we're not coming back for a whole year. <laughs> I mean next month, sorry. <laughs> Well, next month uh, we're going to go back to uh, come forward to 1968, and uh, the film is *The Swimmer*, directed by Frank Perry, starring Burt Lancaster, based on the short story by John Cheever. And this is one of those movies that the less you know about it before you watch it, the better. Okay, so I will look at nothing. Yeah, hit it cold. Awesome, awesome. Well, there you go, folks. Um, if you have any thoughts on this episode, the film we just talked about, what have you? Go to totallypretentious.com and just look for the episode in question. And as uh, just a quick reminder, remember that we're doing uh, a subscriber drive now. So we want to hit 200 subscribers. So please share the show. Tell people you know who love movies and start listening to us. And, you know, help us get to that number so we can do some more stuff for you all. So thanks again for listening. And uh, we will see you all next time. Bye. Bye.